0: This is part two in a four-part series. Please listen to Carolina Girls part one before you listen to this episode. This episode contains discussion of sexual assault and violence committed against children, so listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Last episode, we left off at a crucial point in the investigation into the disappearance and the death of five-year-old Brittany Locklear, who was kidnapped from the bus stop in front of her home on January 7, 1998. Brittany was living in the rural North Carolina county of Hoke, where her family had moved a few years before. Brittany had gone missing on a Wednesday morning when her mother Connie ran back to their trailer to use the restroom. When she came back, Brittany was gone. At first, Connie thought on the school bus, but a neighbor soon alerted her that a white man in a large truck, probably a brown one, had pulled up alongside the road. When he drove off, Brittany was gone. By the time Connie checked with Brittany's school and verified that she hadn't been on the bus, she knew what she had to do. Race to the Hope County Sheriff's Office and tell them what had happened to her daughter. The searches began that day. As we reported last episode, Brittany's book bag and her overalls were found that first afternoon. But then, on Thursday, a terrible discovery. Brittany's body in a drainage ditch just about three miles away from her home. She had been sexually assaulted and then drowned. It's hard to think about the grief Connie and her family must have been feeling then. As a parent, you sometimes imagine what that loss would be like, but then you skitter back from the edge. You're not willing to sit with the raw, unending loss that would seep into everything. Connie Locklear Chavis, she didn't have to imagine that. By Thursday, January 8th, she was living it. She would be for the next 22 years. Even with the discovery of Brittany's body, the investigation was in its earliest stages. As in many other cases we've covered, Hope County law enforcement began by questioning the family. So when you
1: very first heard that they had found her, did the police bring you back?
2: I was at home. When I found out. You were at
1: home, and then did they continue to stay at your house and ask continue to ask questions?
2: No, ma'am. No, not that day. But the next day, yeah. Uh,
1: the next day they were back?
2: Yeah, I had to take a lie of test like, three days after she was buried.
1: And your husband did, too?
2: Mm-hmm, and my father-in-law, my ex-husband, yeah.
1: At the time, was it really difficult to feel like they were focusing on you when you felt like they needed to focus on?
2: Somebody else, you know. Yeah, but they told me that they always have to go, you know, to the parents and eliminate them, you know.
0: All of Brittany's family members passed their polygraphs. Even as those examinations were being conducted, the SBI and the sheriff's office were inundated with calls and tips and rumors more than they'd ever dealt with before. Special Agent Jack Tilly, who eventually left the SBI to become a police chief in a small town, later told reporters that it was overwhelming. In 2006, the Raleigh News and Observer published a long-form article on Brittany's case. In that article... Author Laura Aronshield describes Tilly's experience, quote, In the early weeks, investigators took hundreds of calls each day. Tilly said investigators had neither the manpower nor the equipment to handle all those calls. They jotted notes on paper forms and tried to keep computer spreadsheets of all the leads, but some tips slipped through. Eventually, they were given assistance from the FBI, but it was months later, and the calls had slowed down. Leads dried up. Connie told us that, She doesn't know everything that was reported to the sheriff during that time, though she has had to endure the rumor mill more than once. Let's go back to those very first days, after the family had passed their polygraphs. Even as they were ruled out as suspects, and before Brittany's funeral could be held, the county planned a massive roadblock. Connie tells us that the then-sheriff, Wayne Byrd, announced on TV that this would be happening. It would have been about four days after Brittany disappeared. So, Sunday it was made clear that the authorities were looking for a brown truck. The FBI were in town at that point and working with a sheriff's office. In fact, within the week, they would have a suspect profile drawn up. Maybe the FBI felt it was important to announce the roadblock just to see who reacted. We can only guess. For the Chavis family, though, it was frustrating. They worried that whoever took Brittany was getting a warning and would avoid being caught. Can you talk about some of the things that you wish were done
1: differently
2: i wish that uh the local sheriff at that the sheriff at that time would have not got on tv and i uh, told the people uh if you got a brown truck don't come down ganey road stuff like that a lot of stuff was mishandled
1: so, In her case. So he was almost announcing that they had that roadblock up?
2: Yeah, he told it. what well, the roadblock was and all, and if you've got a brown shirt, don't come down there. Why would you do that?
1: Why did he do that, do you think?
2: I, I have never figured that out. He done that. A lot of things were done that I did not like. But the Lord knows everything, and the Lord sees everything.
0: As the investigation moved along... Eastern North Carolina mourned. Brittany Lynn Locklear's Wake, which was held on January 11th, was perhaps the largest the county had ever seen. It lasted for five hours. According to reporter Laura Aronshield, friends, classmates, family, and strangers dropped notes, gifts, and small keepsakes into her casket. Connie still remembers the size of the crowd. Several days after there was a service at, was it at her
1: school?
2: No, uh, her school wasn't big enough. To, uh, her service was um, at Turleton, the biggest school in Hoke County.
1: That is one of the things that we recognized about this case. We have seen other cases, and for Brittany, it seems like people really showed up for her. Yeah. There were thousands of people at her service mm-hmm. at the school.
2: 6,000, but... Not everybody signed a book, so there might have been more. I
1: mean,
2: six thousand. Six thousand at the setting up, what we call a setting up, like the night before and like five or six at the funeral. Yeah. Yes, ma'am.
1: What was it like to see so many people come together?
2: Um, I was mostly out of it, you know, the whole time. You uh, know. But it made me feel good, you know, to know that people cared.
0: The setting up, which Connie tells us is a word for wake or visitation, saw more visitors than the school of Turlington had likely ever seen before. And the funeral, as Connie said, held the next day on the 12th and attended by hundreds, was led by a local minister. The Fayetteville Observer reported that he directly addressed Brittany's killer during the sermon. Brittany's classmates served as pallbearers, and she was buried in a small family cemetery on property owned by Connie's in-laws. Connie was overwhelmed, both with grief and the presence of so many people, so many reporters, so many questions.
1: Were they able to hook you up with a doctor to see at the time to help you with any of that immediate
0: trauma?
2: No, I uh, took it upon myself to find me a psychiatrist because I need somebody to talk to
0: As Connie and her family operated in survival mode, caring for baby Brianna and struggling to make it through each day, law enforcement were questioning a number of locals. By and large, these suspects have not been publicly named, but Connie heard that certain people were given polygraphs. A few even told her themselves. There was talk of a suspect early on and a sex offender who'd been questioned, but that lead seems to have run out. How many brown trucks could there have been in the Hope County area? By mid-January, Sheriff Byrd released more information, this time a profile of the suspect supplied by the FBI. Connie remembers some aspects of that profile, but the most complete description we found is from the Fayetteville Observer. They wrote that friends and family should look out for someone who had recently exhibited, quote, paranoia, irritability, sudden changes in appearance, or had suddenly begun to clean their car. Based on our review of profiles in previous cases, it seems reasonable to guess that the FBI thought that the perpetrator hadn't done anything like this before, that he would be panicking. At this point in the story, we want to pause and share some information that came to us on social media when we mentioned that we were working on this story. A listener from the area wrote in to tell us about a strange thing that had happened around the time of Brittany's death. To protect this listener's privacy, we will only say the following. That the listener was aware of a person with a brown truck who died by suicide shortly after the murder and just after the roadblock, after the sheriff announced that they would be looking for a brown truck. The listener said that they had shared this information with law enforcement, who seemed familiar with the incident. Connie herself had not heard that particular story, but she's gotten other similar reports of people who acted strangely after Brittany's death. She says that law enforcement got that information too. 1998 was Wayne Byrd's last year as sheriff. In that time, he announced that they had DNA that could identify the killer, but per the Fayetteville Observer, he declined to further specify what kind of sample had been collected. That announcement was in late January. By February, the search had been scaled back. And in May, when an election was held, a man named Jim Davis was chosen as hoax new sheriff. Connie said that his platform included solving Brittany's murder. Before Davis took office, There was a moment when Byrd thought the crime had been solved when, according to the Fayetteville Observer, a man in a nearby town was arrested for, quote, taking indecent liberties with young girls who were waiting for a morning school bus. That man was eventually ruled out, though, probably through DNA, though we can't be sure. And so Jim Davis took office with a cold case at the forefront. Jim Davis, now no longer sheriff, has in recent years declined to publicly comment on Britney's case. So, what we offer next are Connie's memories and feelings concerning the investigation under Davis. Some moments like the press conference we'll mention in a moment are referenced in the local press. Others are personal experiences of Connie's presented as she remembers them. We've not spoken to Jim Davis concerning these events and cannot comment on his version of the experience. Connie says that Davis did seem interested in solving Brittany's murder, but that it was soon evident that the attention would be focused on her family. According to Connie, he was particularly focused on her, her husband, and on her father-in-law. Soon after he took office, the three of them were questioned again.
2: He tried to accuse me, my ex-husband, and my ex-husband's old daddy. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the way it was handled at all. Britney's case at all with Jim Davis. He showed new pictures of Britney to my father-in-law and he, he, they don't, the FBI said they don't even know how he got his hands on them pictures hurling on the autopsy table naked and he's showing my ex-father-in-law pictures like that. Now that wasn't right, I didn't like that. A lot of things went on in her case that I didn't like. And he was like, my father-in-law, he'll be 80 you get it right. He was born thirty-four. He'd be eighty-five Christmas Day, and so back then, take twenty years, say twenty years, he was what sixty-five. He he, he was an older man, and then when he come back to where we was staying, his face was red as that, and he had a skirt right after them. And I always accused him, Jim Davis, of it. You know, he shouldn't have done that. That was that was very uncalled for. But I made sure that he did not run anymore. And he would not get in anymore cause he used Brittany's case to get in the office. And then he messed it up when he got in there. So, you know.
0: He had a press conference,
2: right? He had a press conference. I showed up, he hated an apartment complex. And it was like the lounge, like the building that goes to it, like the meeting building. And, uh, I'm, my cousin found out that it was going to be there, and me and her my ex-husband went, and I blowed it out of the water. All the press come out with me. I said, oh, no, you're not going to stand here and think you. you're going to get reelected using my daughter's name. I don't think so. And he didn't have no information. He was just using Brittany to try to get reelected. He used her to get elected. Uh-uh. After he had put my father-in-law through what he had put him through, and me too come at... My father's house at seven o'clock in the morning, taking me in, and handcuffs. Son, his deputies to come there and uh handcuff me and carry me in, and uh you're uh not open nervous arrest, but uh we need you to bring come downtown for the question. For the uh murder of Britney Lynn Locklear. Yes, I did. Yes, he did. He done a lot. But I started slapping, but he said he was the sheriff for Hope County. I said, that don't make you God Almighty.
1: I'm trying to even come up with what he would think your role was. Well,
2: the FBI now, when I took uh, the lie detector test, FBI looked at me and said, uh, you sure didn't and, uh a bumper head in the tub and you wouldn't throw her out in the woods? And I went to hit the uh, FBI and he said, if I wouldn't have reacted like that, you know, he thought something was wrong. But now that Jim Davis, he just, oh, he made me mad. And he put me in another room, like a little old room, and told my, uh, told Brittany's daddy that uh, he was going to arrest me. Don't worry about it. He had already arrested me because uh, Charles couldn't see me. Cause they had us in different parts of the sheriff's office. They had me, Charles, and uh, my father-in-law. They they never questioned nobody else in my family. They didn't, which I'm not saying nobody in my family doing it, but we were targeted. Me, Brittany's daddy, and his daddy, we were targeted, and I don't feel like that was right. Jim Davis, he just... And then I had lost the trailer and he put a crime tape all the way around my trailer and went and told people that he found bloody clothes in my house, had people talking about me and everything. Yeah, I've been through a lot since, since that happened to Brittany. I've been through a lot.
0: An opinion column published in the Fayetteville Observer echoes Connie's sentiments. Per the Observer, and this is a long quote, but stay with us, quote, Throughout his tenure, Sheriff Jim Davis has generated plenty of controversy and more than a few uncomfortable moments for the county as well. Most recently, Davis made a series of vague and confusing statements about new leads in the death of Brittany Locklear, a five-year-old girl who was kidnapped and murdered in 1998. Two weeks ago, Davis held a press conference to discuss the investigation, but it collapsed into a wave of embarrassment when Brittany's mother stormed angrily out of the session, claiming Davis was using the case to help his re-election effort. She was right. End quote. The newspaper archive lists no author for that column. Now, there was some talk of new information during Jim Davis's term. Local news mentioned a possible lead, an inmate with information on the case, but that seems to have led nowhere. The district attorney later said as much. And by 2002... Hoke had a new sheriff, again, the third in four years. That man, Hubert Peterkin, he's still sheriff today, and Connie likes him. His detectives stay in contact with her. In fact, they'd stopped in not too long before we drove up to visit her, just to touch base. Peterkin declined to comment on this episode, but we can tell you something of what's gone on while he's been sheriff. In fact, there was a moment early on in his tenure when everyone thought Brittany's killer had been caught. A 2003 Fayetteville Observer article by Matt LeClaire offers details. LeClaire writes that a firefighter who worked in Fort Bragg, Kenneth Laundrie, was questioned in the case, quote, caught the attention of investigators after his co-workers found pictures of Brittany in his locker. The discovery came following his arrest July 29th by Carthage police, who said that Laundrie, disguised in a chemical suit and mask, had robbed a BBMT bank, end quote. Connie remembers hearing that he had a real photograph, but media reports said that it was a photo clipped out of the newspaper. According to The Observer, he drove a black 2000 model Dodge Ram, not the brown truck they'd been looking for, but it could have been replaced. However he was eventually ruled out via DNA. And according to the Fayetteville Observer, investigators indicated in 2006 that, quote, they were no closer to solving her murder than they had been in 1998. This, despite thousands of hours put in by the Hope County Sheriff, the FBI, and the SBI. At one point, Former special agent Tilly told local reporters that there were more than 17,000 leads recorded in Brittany's file. 17,000. And still, Connie Chavis and her family wait. Her daughter Brianna has grown up, and now she has a tattoo on her forearm that reads, My Sister's Keeper. Connie and Charles eventually divorced. The strain of losing Brittany was just too much. Since the last real lead, which came in 2003, Connie Chavis has just paused. She spends time with her family and friends. When we came up to interview her, she just cooked a huge Thanksgiving feast for just about everyone she knows. But still, she feels like she's on hold, so much waiting. And she has the feeling that maybe, if they weren't Lumby, if they'd been a different family, Brittany's case might have been solved. Not because of the sheriffs. Davis and Peterkin are both black men, a first and second for Hoke. It's more widespread and subtle than that. What isn't said or who isn't speaking and why. What role do you think
1: that did play because she was Ah.
0: Uh,
2: to be honest with you, I'm thinking that she would have been another race it would have been so
1: So you've seen other kids... In other circumstances, get treated differently. Well, I,
2: have never known of anybody that lost a child away. I did, so I can't sit here and say that. So I can't, I can't comment on that. But um, I don't know. Hope County's racist. So They're that's racist. They're yes, really, yeah. really racist. And it's a wonder if Jim Davis lasted as long as he did, or Peterkin, because they are racist. Like the Ku Klux Klan, racist.
0: She's also frustrated by the lack of national attention for Britney's case. She thinks about victims like JonBenet Ramsey, who was also five. When John Binet was murdered in 1996, the entire world stopped. Connie, like the mother of Shikimiya Pate, who we covered in season five, she didn't see her own small child make the primetime news. And at the time, there were shows like America's Most Wanted featuring missing and murdered children's stories. So where was Britney?
1: Why don't as many people know about Britney's case? Yeah, a lot of people knows about it.
2: But, yeah, I don't know. I like John Walsh. The, the thing he used to do, he turned me down. He wouldn't even do nothing about Britney on his show. And his son got done the same way Britney did. I didn't know, never understand that.
1: Yes, can you tell us, Um, did you write a letter? Yeah. And they
0: didn't answer, or they answered and said no?
2: they answered and said they couldn't do it at this time. They were sorry. And then I, would ha- I, I was supposed to went on the, um, the Mori Popich, Purp- Purp- not Mori. Um, oh, Popich. Oh,
1: Montel. Not,
2: yeah. But I was supposed to have been on the Montel show. Like, they never got back up with me, though. I signed a contract and everything, because I had to sign a contract saying that if I get to New York, that I would, uh, I got off in LaGuania Airport. They would come pick me up from where I stayed at, take me to the airport, and I would fly to Guania, get off there, and then his limousine would be there to pick me up. And I couldn't be walking on the streets or whatever. Anywhere I needed to go, the limousine would take me. I had to uh, sign a contract and fax it back to him. But right after then, I would never see his show. It's been quite a few years back, so... So that
1: never panned out. No. But you attempted to contact national media to get people to cover her case. Unsolved, you know, the same thing happened to other children that got national media.
2: I never couldn't understand that.
1: We've talked to a lot of mothers who have had things happen to their children, and it changes the way they relate to their other children. Can you talk about... Some of the things that went on with Brianna that may not have, you know, gone on if you had not lost Brittany in this way.
0: Did you keep her real close after Brittany? Mm-hmm. We've heard about it like yeah. it increases. your. Yeah, she didn't ride
1: I... a bus to she
2: was in high school. And I did want to send her to school at all. But I know if I did, you know, I'd probably get in trouble with law enforcement. So I sent her to school the last two weeks of kindergarten. And she got 25 awards and a trophy. She read 25 books. And stuff.
1: Would she describe you as a mom who's kind of strict, like because you want to know where she is and keep her close and keep her safe? Yes, yeah, sometimes she gets
2: aggravated with me and her daddy <laughs> because if she gets off work, I give her a time limit where she's supposed to be at home. Because, like I say, she works at night. You know, she likes that graveyard shift. <laughs> Overprotective. Mm-hmm. I tried not to be like that by you bringing know, but her daddy is, <laughs> yeah, he's very protective. He's always been like right that, though.
1: Yeah, how do you feel like this has affected him?
2: Um, uh, well, he grieved, but he didn't let his and all out. And that hurts you.
0: Brittany Lynn Locklear was five years old when she died. And someone, someone in Hope County, probably multiple someones, knows who killed her. There is a $20,000 reward in her case. View of information that can lead to resolution for Brittany Locklear, contact the SBI at 919-662-4500 or the Hope County Sheriff's Office at 910-875-5111. Now, we want to touch back further back than 1998 on another Carolina girl. At the beginning of this series, we mentioned the odd synchronicity that happened when we began researching Brittany's case back in mid 2019. It's when we came across the story of another girl, one who had also disappeared from her own front yard. Now, she wasn't in Hope County, not even close. Instead, she lived in York County, South Carolina a square of towns and suburbs loosely strung around a college called Winthrop University and edging up against the North Carolina border. Eva de Brule lived a little ways outside Rock Hill, which was the town built up around the college, a place that students have been calling Rock Thrill since at least the 1980s. It's not metropolitan. Plenty of creeks and land. Depending on which way the wind blew, there was a time when Rock Hill would be slammed with the acrid stink of the Catawba paper mill, which was in production only 17 miles away. So, not quite North Carolina, but close enough. Another case with the state line, easy to cross, easy enough to complicate an investigation. Get in your car and head north and you're in Charlotte in under an hour. That would have put Eva more than three hours from Brittany, but There's nothing that leads us to believe their cases might be linked in the first place. Still, there are similarities. The small towns seeming like safe places. The lack of resolution. Eva disappeared in 1977 in the hot, flat valley of the middle of the summer. She was 15 years old. She had long, dark blonde hair and wore glasses in most of her school photos. Eva lived on family property that held two structures her home, and then her grandmother's. In the larger home, Eva lived with her sister, her mother, and her father, who worked as a mechanic. Eva's family had already dealt with a terrible loss. According to CNN, her younger brother had been killed by a drunk driver just four years earlier, and he was just 11 and had been walking to a playground. Eva, barely a year older than him, was devastated, and so was the rest of the family. Fast forward four years, June 27th, 1977. Eva was home from school that summer with no part-time job, so she had a lot of free time on her hands. The rest of the family, except for her grandmother, who was in her own home on the property, was at work that day. It was a hot, bright South Carolina morning. We know that Eva was wearing shorts, a flower print top, and flip-flops. We also know that she'd planned to mow the lawn, According to law enforcement reports, she poured herself a glass of tea, then went outside to take care of the grass. When her grandmother looked out the window from her own little house, she saw a man in a truck, or as some sources have said, a Jeep, pull up into her son's driveway. At least one source reports that the vehicle pulled up more than once and that the driver got out of the car, and that Eva's grandmother then described him as a white male. This event didn't initially strike Eva's grandmother as odd. After all, Eva's father was a mechanic, and his clients, or people having sudden car trouble, they were known to stop by. But then, Eva didn't come to her grandma's for lunch, and according to CNN, they'd had that planned. CNN reported that, quote, Eva wasn't at the door to greet her sister when she came home from her summer job at the local textile mill. And when Eva's dad came home later in the afternoon, he found his daughter's shoes laying in the grass. Her tea was still on the counter. In a July 2019 retrospective on the case, local news station WCNC wrote, quote, It was the story that captivated the small town in the late 1970s. It's unclear how long it took detectives to come to Eva's home, but when they eventually conducted a search and questioned witnesses, that's when they found out what her grandmother had seen. Her WCNC, volunteers searched both the woods surrounding the house and the river. The Herald newspaper described the search as exhaustive and that it involved hundreds of people, but said it was, quote, ultimately fruitless. CNN reports that a Coke bottle made in Georgia was found in the yard. Remember, this was South Carolina, but it was not tested or dusted for fingerprints. Still, even so, it's reported that the family felt that law enforcement did an excellent job in Eva's case, especially pursuing it year after year, following up on tips that even led them out of state. But despite the detectives' best efforts, there were no developments. The Charlie Project, among other sources, reported that Eva's father took her disappearance very, very hard. It's said that he quit his job. So he could spend all of his time searching for her. He didn't stop until his death in 1997. It's that same sentiment we've heard from other parents of missing children that they're afraid of dying without knowing what happened to their babies. Eva's case is complicated by a number of tragic and infuriating factors, none of which are the fault of her family or law enforcement. Her case attracted a lot of local attention and inspired a number of people in and out of state, to call in false leads and threads, and even make extortion attempts, claiming they had Eva if only the family could hand over $15,000. Perhaps most famously, Eva's case is one of the many tainted, directly or indirectly, by the confessions of Henry Lee Lucas, a man who was once viewed as the most prolific serial killer in the history of the United States. He confessed to hundreds of crimes— along with his sometimes-traveling companion, Otis Toole, and even said at one point that he'd been trained as a kind of satanic assassin. In more recent years, there's been much criticism of departments who were so eager to close cases that they'd believe anything Lucas had to say, even as he was fed information on those crimes. When many of Lucas's confessions were disproved, it didn't necessarily mean that those hastily closed cases were open and active again. Now, Eva's case was viewed as a possibility by York sheriffs, who, according to the Associated Press, actually traveled to Texas to interview Lucas, but they never thought that he was a truly strong candidate. To quote the 2017 article, they told locals that evidence didn't match. Eva's family were, in a sense, luckier than most. York wasn't looking to quickly close Eva's case, and they were actually looking for her killer. According to the Herald, York County sheriffs eventually excavated a well on the family's property, and they've kept up with technological advances, including submitting the DeBruel's family DNA to each law enforcement database that's been established, year by year. The state newspaper reported that in the late 2000s, human bones were found in the York County area, and it briefly looked like there might be a break in Eva's case. Those bones weren't Eva's, but they did revive public knowledge about her case because by that time, social media was booming and the story could be shared. The Herald quotes Eva's sister, Tammy, quote, you have to remember that 40 years ago, technology was not what it is today. I firmly believe that if it happened today, the technological advances would have solved this crime. We would know. Now we have cell phones, cell phone pings, credit card trails, All the things that help police catch people. The police have done a superb job, but in 1977, technology was totally different. End quote. Tammy carried on the search for Eva after their father's passing. She reported that Eva, who was the baby of the family since her brother's death, was, quote, precious, that she loved children and singing in the church choir, and that she could recite the Bible from memory. Quote, she was so sweet and innocent. Now, Eva was a working-class girl from a deep South county with a limited budget, and she hasn't been cemented in our cultural consciousness. Few cases from the 1970s have. If not for a dedicated family and dedicated local police, there wouldn't be anything left of her case in our contemporary record. Her connection to Brittany Locklear is situational. A girl in her own yard, taken by a man in a truck, in the daytime, when we all expect to be safe. Suspects ruled out, but rumors still flying. The thing that separates them as cases is the treatment of their families. And after all these years, the solvability. We know that in Brittany's case, DNA is available. It's been used to rule out at least one suspect. How many people are the Hope County authorities trying to rule in? Have the polygraphs that were given to locals been reviewed? Rumors followed up on? initial suspects re-questioned? Maybe to solve this case, we start with a simple, essential question. How did Brittany's identity as an Indigenous child affect the presentation, the investigation, or the community reaction to her case in the first place? It's time to find out. Brittany's family has been ruled out more than once, but what about others in Hope County? Justice January Connie Chavis faced down the 22nd anniversary of her daughter's kidnapping and death. If you have information to share with the family or with law enforcement, perhaps you can help prevent a 23rd year without answers or resolution. Again, if you have any information, please call the Hope County Sheriff at 910-875-5111. Next time on The Fall Line we continue our Carolina Girl series with the case of Nishan Huff of Greenville, South Carolina, and other women and girls in the Carolinas whose murders remain unsolved. This season, we'll also look at the disappearance of Aaliyah Bell from Rock Hill, the most recent case that we've ever covered. To learn more about the history and the current culture of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina, follow the link in our show notes to the tribal government website. We've also included a link to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. Thanks also to Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry. And remember to check out her books, which are linked in our show notes. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton, with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store, and a portion of our merch proceeds is donated to support the work of the DNA Dope Project. We'll be back next week with part three and the Carolina girls series. We hope you'll join us then. If you want to hear more of the fall line in the meantime, check out our new full length early access releases on Stitcher premium. You'll hear those standalone episodes and mini series long before they hit the main feed. And you'll also have access to ad free versions of our upcoming regular releases. If you want to access those episodes, go to stitcherpremium.com and sign up with the code LINE, L-I-N-E. You'll get a free month of premium listening, which means an ad-free experience in Stitcher, our early access episodes, and you'll be supporting our show too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code LINE.